the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope wherever this finds you, today's episode helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, if you're a young leader, we have got millennial and Gen Z expert Paul and Joni on the podcast today, and we are going to talk about the connection between success and what you pay attention to and beating digital overwhelm and how to find wisdom because apparently it got lost. Today's episode is brought to you by my newsletter on the rise. It goes out every Friday with my most interesting links of the week. You can get it for free at ontherisenewsletter.com and by Compassion. Compassion wants to partner with your church to help impoverished children around the world. Go to compassion.com slash carry to explore the resources Compassion has for you. So wherever you are listening today, I want to say welcome. Welcome to those of you who are new. Welcome to those of you. I, I hear regularly from people who say, hey man, I was here from episode one, which is awesome. And that's uh, 587 episodes ago. And uh, I'm just really glad you're here. Uh, one of the most meaningful things you can do is to subscribe and share it with a friend. So if you're brand new, uh, please subscribe. And if you are a regular listener and you have enjoyed or will enjoy this episode or another one like it, would you just share it with a friend, send them the link and let them know? Because as you share the show, guess what? We get to make it better. We get some of the best guests in the world and we can improve on that all the time the more you share. So Paul Anjoni is one of the nation's most trusted and sought after voices for young professionals and leaders who are striving to pay attention to what's important. He is the best-selling author of five books, including 101 Secrets for Your 20s. And we're going to talk about a little bit about his new release, Listen to Your Day, The Life-Changing Practice of Paying Attention. He's also the creator of All Grown Up, which has been read by millions in 190 different countries. And he is host of the All Grown Up podcast. So one of the things I like to do is read widely. For example, on my summer vacation this year, guess what I'm reading? I'm reading a book about the hidden life of trees. Why? It has absolutely nothing to do with what I do, but I find that stuff makes me better. So I have got a newsletter that goes out every Friday called On The Rise, and over 85,000 leaders subscribe to it. I will obviously share things about the church and faith and trends, etc., but I also share things like, well, links to the secret lives of trees or YouTube videos or music I'm finding interesting or podcasts I'm listening to, or, well, it's a whole variety, a grab bag of curious things. Many people tell me it's their favorite thing to open every week. And if you want to check it out, simply go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You can sign up in an instant and it's free. And when you sign up, I'll send you a sample newsletter right away so you can get a taste of what it's like. It's easy to subscribe, easy to unsubscribe if you change your mind, but go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You will get my best curated content about faith, culture, the church, and more. And I want to tell you before we jump into today's episode about Compassion International. I love how they partner with the local church. I've been on numerous trips with Compassion, and you know how they deliver the aid to over 2.2 million children? They do it through the local church. They're empowering churches around the world, and they will empower your church to partner with churches to help over 2 million children in poverty. So as a pastor, Compassion offered our church an amazing opportunity for outreach. It really allows everybody to participate. And if you want to see what Compassion can do for your people, and obviously for kids around the world, go to Compassion.com slash carry. That's Compassion.com slash C-A-R-E-Y to explore the resources that um, Compassion wants to use to partner with you. And now my conversation with Paul and Joni. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Oh, thanks for having me, Carrie. It's an honor being here. Yeah. So you've spent a lot of your career focused on the next generation, basically Gen Z and millennials in their 20s and 30s in particular. I want to talk about, because that's most of the listeners of this show. So how have you seen over the last decade, 15 years, obviously Gen Z were babies back then, yeah. but how have you seen attitudes change as yeah. Gen Z and millennials have gotten a bit older? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I've been I've been writing and researching specifically on this mm -hmm. topic for over a decade. Uh, did my master's program in it. I mean, I've been fully embroiled in this topic and helping generations work better together too. Sure. Um, so that we all understand each other better. So I've had that privilege of traveling around, talking keynotes across industries. So I have had a lot of experience on this topic. 
And and one thing to answer your question, I'll maybe spin it a little bit, is I yeah. do show a slide where I'll put, uh, you know, when I'm doing a keynote, I'll show a slide that says entitled, narcissistic, mm. self-absorbed, mm. think they know and can be anything. You know, because some of those traits have have kind of stayed with, whether it was millennials or Gen Z, some of those uh, some of those adjectives have really stayed with young adults today. And and so I'll have the leaders break up into groups, and I'll have them even discuss this with each other. You know, your experience mm-hmm. with these entitled, self absorbed Gen Zers and millennials. The room gets loud, animated. It's tough to bring the group group back together. I'm like, this is like group counseling. I should be getting paid more for this. You know, th- this is like therapy. And, uh, but then I'll say, but I actually, I tricked you guys and I'll press a button and my screen on all the terms will stay there entitled narcissistic, but it'll switch from millennials and Gen Z to boomers (laughs) from a 1970s essay called the me decade. Wow. So I do like to start there because I like to start with where we're similar. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of this generational talk is not always a generational thing. It's an age thing. It's a stage of life thing that stayed pretty true for the last 50, 60 years. You know, studies Mm. have shown that you're more narcissistic in your 20s. Whether you're Mm. a boomer, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, you're more focused on yourself, which makes sense because you're not married. You don't have kids. You don't maybe Mm -hmm. have a house. Mm -hmm. So, so, So starting there, I think, helps with talking about how we're similar and then getting down to the differences. That's really good to know. And I mean, some of it, I guess, probably is generational because I remember when millennials were at the stage Gen Z is, is like, they're not going to buy houses. They're not going to have kids. Now, they waited a few years longer than their Gen X parents or boomer grandparents. But, you know, millennials are the most populous generation. They're having kids in droves. It's also early evidence. They might be more generous than Mm. boomers, Mm -hmm. which is insane. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and that's, that's good to know. You know, I had a moment yesterday where we got back after a long trip. I went to get groceries, uh, in the evening and I was at one of those self checkout things, which is always a bad idea, you know, unless you have five (laughs) items, it's like, ah, I should have left this to the professionals, but there was one, I don't know, maybe 19, 20 year old. And I asked her for help on something. So she helped me. And then someone else asked her for help. And I guess she was sweeping the floor and it was just kind of like, she said to her coworker out loud in front of all the customers, Uh like, oh, you know, I'm just having such a hard time today because I'm trying to sweep. That's my duty. But people keep asking me for help. And I'm like, oh, honey, like, listen, if you think this is complicated, I don't, I don't want to get you into life. Okay. Yeah, like, is. don't, don't even get me started that on that. That's funny. And then I'm like, I probably felt that way when I was 19 too. Well, you, you know, know? And, and that is one of your, and to talk about the differences, to really answer your question, you mentioned it a little bit in, in what you were just describing, but mm. the, the idea of emerging adulthood, you know, and I did a lot yeah. of my research on my, and, and Jeffrey Jen, Jensen Arnett is the man who started studying this, basically mm. this elongated adulthood process that he was starting to find that we're not going from adolescent to an adult, that it's, mm. it's uh, elongating, it's becoming more of a process. And I think there's some data points that we can look at that, that shows this, right? Like you mentioned, having mm-hmm. kids later, buying a house later, feeling like I'm stepping into my career later in life. So I, I really do like to point that out, especially to leaders, because if you want to talk about retention in an organizational setting, whether this is an employee, you know, a 20-year-old that you're trying to retain, or in a church setting, you're trying to retain mm-hmm. this 20-something, mm-hmm. I think this plays a huge role and factor because now you have a, a whole group that isn't really rooted in anything. They mm, don't have the house that's tying them down. They don't have a wife and kids. Uh, they maybe don't feel like they're in their career whatsoever. They're still trying to figure that out. So yeah, if they're not feeling something, whatever that is, well, there's a lot less riding on them to then make a big change. And, and so mm. I think that plays a huge role as far as a generational difference. You know, where 30, 40 years ago, you had two kids, a wife, a house, a mortgage by 25. Well, if you weren't feeling your job, well, it, what are you going to do? It was a much bigger risk to make a change at that point. Well, and you know, I know you're not an expert in Gen X or boomers or that kind of thing, but you do generational research. One of the frequent conversations I've had with friends, none of them well into my 50s, is like, I remember 55-year-olds when I was a kid. In the picture I have in my mind, in the odd photo album I go into... They're like white hair, walkers, bent over with wheelchairs, you know, growing up. Not all, but uh-huh. like, 
it's like 75 today at 55, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Now life was harder. A lot of these people have been through the war. They didn't have the level of economic prosperity my generation and others have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But like I was talking to a friend of mine last summer and he's like, you know, the number of people who can still, they're up for a 40K bike ride dwindles every year. So I'm really grateful for your friendship, but I'm like 58. I feel better than when I was 38. Yeah. And I wonder, is there that extended, I don't, that's not delayed adolescence, but it's almost like, you know, I always say to young leaders who are like, I'm 35, I haven't written my book, like haven't launched my podcast. I'm like, dude, just wait till you're 49 (laughs) or 50, because if your kids are gone by then, there's so much life on the other side. Are you seeing something similar yeah. on the older spectrum that older age seems to be? And I'm not talking about transhumanism yeah. or, you know, sure. um, freezing my brain so I can come back alive sometime. I have no interest in that <laughs> uh, in the future. But like, are you seeing that kind of extension of midlife to go a little bit longer? Yeah, I think so. You know, and I, I think also what you're pointing to that makes that I think is really important to point out is just how quickly these generational stereotypes fall apart. Mm-hmm. And really that's mm-hmm. what all this conversation is typically built around. So again, when I'm speaking to leaders, I'm typically just trying to chip away at, hey, this is pretty ridiculous that we're all saying this is what a millennial is, or mm. this is what a boomer is. Because we're taking, you know, if we're in the United States, and depending on what date range you're using, because again, mm. all of this is made up, this yes, is not hard right. science. Somebody, somebody made this up. And, and there's a yeah. whole there's a whole mix of people that made it up. You know, so some will say uh-huh. millennials born between 80 and 85 or 85 and 90. And now there's zennials. You know, there's there's all these new descriptors from whatever social scientists wants to have the best research research study so they can get paid the most yeah. as the best consultant <laughs> for marketing purposes, right? Um, and, and so I think I think it's just a great reminder for all of us to maybe take a step back from that idea of, oh, this is what Gen Z is. This is what millennial is. I've experienced three millennials in my workplace. So now I have them all uh, defined. Right, here's and, my book. <laughs> and I, and, and, well, and I, think, I think just think we're too quick to rush in, 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 in there's a lot of nuance and, and there's a lot of relationship right. involved in that for, for all generations. And so that's mm-hmm. what I say about millennials and Gen Z too, because they have you know, okay, you know the phrase, okay, boomer, you know, that, now that's that generational tag on someone who's bitter or angry. It's like, okay, boom. Yeah, yeah no, true. I was going to ask you, what are some misconceptions about younger generations? But I want to flip it. What are some characteristics that actually are true? And I'll give you an example, at least, and feel free to correct me. Yeah, I'm not, sure. I do not have like an ex- expertise at all. Um, like I would say millennials, generally speaking, are more socially conscious than Gen X was. Like when I think about how some of my 35-year-old friends approach shopping, where was that t-shirt made? Was it, you know, human trafficking or or forced labor or was Mm -hmm. it sustainable, ethical? What does it do to the environment? Those are questions that are, I'd say, more more typical of millennials than of someone my age. Now I happen to be concerned about those things too, but they don't come as naturally to Mm. me. Um, what, what are some stereotypes that you think are perhaps true about younger generations? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I'm trying to get to the heart of trying to connect with Gen Z and and millennials, especially from, from a leader's perspective, I sometimes will boil it down to one thing that I think is important to talk about that I really feel like millennials and Gen Z, I think both in, in different ways, but are driven by this fear of insignificance. So it's not even that they 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 want significance, but they're even driven by the fear of feeling insignificant. And so that idea of you know I really want to be heard, I want to be seen, I want to feel like I'm I'm doing something important, I'm a part of something important. You know, this is what success looks like for millennials and Gen Z. And really, that's what we're trying to get down to is we're trying to get to different definitions of, okay, what does career success look like? Mm-hmm. What does life, whole work-life balance look like for, from a successful standpoint uh, from you? And so I think it really is. And, and so it's been trying to get down to, okay, what, what is significance for millennials and Gen Z? And what does that vision of success look like? And then to tie it on to another stereotype that I think is mostly true is just the amount of time and, and really the addiction that uh, younger people are spending on their phones 
their devices Mm -hmm. that they've grown up with. You know, digital natives, this is a part of their life from when they were born. Uh, They don't see new technologies as this new technology. They just see it as an extension of themselves. And so that is really then playing into this role of what is the vision of success? Because now it's not just the Jones down the street. Now it's a global viewing of what success looks like and what is significance look like now. Yeah. And I think that is a big change generationally. And I'm glad we're going to spend a lot of time. I really want to spend some time with you unpacking uh, the attention economy, the art of paying attention, the lost art of paying attention. And I'd love your take here because I think that could be a difference. Like I remember what it was like in a pre-digital world and you kind of had no choice but to pay attention, even if you had ADHD. It's Mm. like you got three people around you you're in the conversation. I didn't have devices. You know, I was uh, applying for a U.S. green card, which I graciously got. And it was my biggest exposure back to the 1980s. I had to go to a consulate, U.S. consulate, had to sit there. And you were stripped of everything. I mean, not just like checking for weapons, but no phone, no smartwatch, no books, no reading material. You could bring your dossier, your file, and all the stuff your lawyer had prepared. And then you just sit there. And it was literally the closest thing to the 1980s I had hit in decades. And I was there for three hours, just looking at the wall, counting the ceiling ceiling tiles, watching the second hand on the clock go by. And at first it was boring and then it got really fun. But Mm. like then, like I remember that in my childhood. Mm. Um, Millennials and Gen Z today never had that moment. They were always surrounded by screens. So what has happened to paying attention? Yeah, you know, that's, that's playing the biggest factor in this. You know, we mm. have, it, it really, and I, I describe it as really there is a war for our attention now, yep. more so than ever. And mm-hmm. everything and everybody wants your attention because your attention is money. And, and really that's how a lot of these platforms are measured. You know, they're measured by the amount of time that you're spending on, you know, social media platforms because the amount of time means uh, the amount of revenue that they can bring in from advertisers. Totally. So, so they're totally, they're, they're all built to be as maximally addicting as possible. Hmm. That's really their goal. You know, and, and, and in my new book, I talk about, I bring research in from different engineers uh, and one of them used a phrase, he helped create the infinite scroll. So that technology on Instagram, and you see it all over Netflix now, all these places where basically they don't want you to think about making a choice, what should I pay attention to? They want it to infinitely scroll so that your mind can't catch up to, hey, do I want to watch this? Should I, should I spend time doing this? They just want you to stick and stay in this kind of environment. And, uh, and he called it like creating behavioral cocaine. You know, mm. that was their goal. And so I think we have to bring up these kind of uh, revelations. We have to bring up this conversation because this device, while it's very powerful and useful, and we all are using it every day, and social media platforms can be very helpful, there's also that side of this is taking all of our attention, and and many of us are addicted to it, mm-hmm. you know, and and we're spending on average four to five hours a day now. Uh, looking at our smartphone, which equates to about 15 years of our life uh, that you might be looking at your phone. And, mm. and so I think it was, it's an interesting realization for me as I felt like I was struggling with that. And that's why I became very passionate about, hey, I don't feel like I'm really in control anymore of my own attention. And that's alarming to me. So why are you not, that, 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 this is very important. I've had Nur Eyal on the, or near Eyal, I should say, on, on the podcast before. I'm very interested in this. I would love to have Tristan Harris as a guest on the show. Why do you think that you don't have agency or that you don't have control? What, what flip? Because I remember, I remember Instagram when it wasn't suggested posts and it would give you a little message, you're all caught up. Hmm. And then one day you're all caught up, disappeared. And you're right, the infinite scroll showed up. And yeah. I miss the you're all caught up. You'll, you're never caught up. No. Why is, it, why is it that you are struggling with agency and like you've lost control? Yeah, you know, I think that's the telltale sign of an addiction, right? You know, and, and I'll ask plenty of people. I'll go to speaking engagement. I'll ask the room, you know, who of you spends 30 minutes, 45 minutes on Instagram uh, you know, go through all the posts, all your friends, and then you leave that experience and feel, you know, and say to yourself, 
you know, I feel so much better about my life. You <laughs> yeah. know, I feel great. I feel energized. I feel motivated. I feel better about my body, my house, my spouse, my kids, whatever it is you know, that image is that you're projecting. Um, I don't think anybody leaves that experience after you've spent that amount of time and feel better. You know, so it's again that I think, again, these are all telltale signs of an addiction, something that you used to enjoy uh, that you in that you now, you know, can't stop and you no longer enjoy it. And but but you really can't stop doing it and you mm. don't even know why. And yet you're in such a pattern. You're on that carousel and you're just spinning around and you feel nauseous. But you're like, I don't know how to necessarily get off of this thing. So I'll just eat more cotton candy and go around again. And yeah. maybe it'll feel better the next time. You know, so I think that we're, that's why this conversation gets very serious and why I, you know, I feel like we have to build new habits and practices so that we are intentional with our attention. And it is a self-discipline that I don't mm-hmm. think we discuss enough. You know, we talk about self-discipline mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but not when it comes to our attention and especially with our, our relationship now with all our devices. You say that when you're endlessly scrolling your mind or mindlessly scrolling, your mind is still working. What can you explain that? Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, our minds never stop, you know, so we're, mm-hmm. we're taking all of this information in and we might not even realize it, but, you know, but our body is keeping score, you know, to, to quote a mm-hmm. book, you know, our body mm-hmm. is, is so our nervous system, our anxiety levels, our brain chemistry, you know, all of this is paying very close attention to what we're doing. Uh, and, and even if we feel like I'm mindlessly just looking on the phone and, and I can't even tell you how many times that I've, uh, you know, I, I've been going through my day and I'm like, I feel anxious about something. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's always important for me to define my anxiety. So I have to start. So it's not, it's not faceless. It's not nameless. I got to define, okay, what is making me anxious? Let me put a name to this. Let me figure this out. And I can't even tell you how many times that I've taken those steps back, you know, was it the conversation I just had with my wife? No, that was good. With my kids? No, that was good. Oh, wait, I know why I'm anxious. It was because of that thing I saw on social media. Mm. And, and I didn't even consciously take it in that that bothers me. Or, hey, I didn't get enough likes on that post. I didn't feel mm. validated enough. I didn't feel seen enough. But it wasn't until later where I'm just kind of carrying around this anxiety on my back. You know, So that's, again, this, these signs that our mind, our body is taking all of this in whether we think it, it, it's not or, or it is. Hmm. What have you learned about the attention economy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I talk a lot about this idea that your attention is a, a currency. Mm-hmm. And it's even in the phrase, you know, pay attention. Yeah. It, it's built in there. You know, that's what we're told to do, pay attention. And it really is like you're making a transaction with all these different things that you're paying attention to. Uh, and, but for many of us, you know, I feel like it's, it's like we're out, we're going outside our front door and we just got $20 bills and it's like, whoever comes by here, here's a 20, here's a 20, you know, entertain me for five seconds and I'll give you a 20, you know, you know, that's kind of what it feels like with the ways that we're spending our attention. So, so even looking at it from a a financial transactional standpoint, it's helpful for me to even ask the question of, okay, where I, am I investing my attention is it into things that I want to invest in. Am I building that kind of compound interest with what I'm paying attention to? And also, where am I in debt to with my attention? You know, where am I enslaved to really with mm-hmm. my attention? Because where I'm spending my time and my attention, well, that is showing what I'm also placing my importance and my worth and my values. So do I want to be enslaved to TikTok or Instagram? Um, or do I want to feel like I'm spending my time and attention on the things that I say matter the most to me? Hmm. How do you know it's an addiction? You know, I think, you know, that's, addictions are a tricky thing, right? You know, and that's why there's, you know, so I've really been working on this. I've really been yeah, working on this yeah. to not be addicted to my phone. Yeah. It's a, you know, you know, there's, there's the, you know, there's the multiple facets of addiction, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not a full, full out expert in addiction sure. recovery or things like that. So I don't want to overspeak or oversimplify a fighting with an addiction, but especially in the terms of phone, you know, there's, there's different tools we can take in to help limit mm-hmm. the amount of time we spend on our phone. Um, so even as, you know, one technology that I've been introduced with, and I've gotten to know the guys, the, um, uh, the RO box 
is a new invention okay. that these guys in, in Tennessee, they're great guys. Oh, I think and, I've heard from them. Yeah, you yeah. might have heard from them. And they and they yeah. created a box that you put your phone in and you're rewarded. It's almost like a game. You're rewarded for the time that your phone is in the box. Oh, um, different guys. Okay. So that you can, uh, you know, you, that you're, so that you know, and you just, again, have a better handle of, okay, let me put, okay, I, I don't want to be on my phone when I'm at home or in these spaces. So I'm going to put my phone here. And so I can monitor better where am I spending my time and how much time mm. I'm spending on my phone. Mm. Um, mm. So there's tools like that. And there's lots of other great tools, you know, like you know, for, for my kids, uh, we have, we've given them, uh, I feel like I'm doing product placement. I'm not getting paid by any of these people, Yeah, sure, sure. but, uh, but uh, the Gab, uh, the Gab wireless or Gab watch or phones, you know, mm. this has been a great new technology for maybe families that don't, that want their kids to have the ability to contact you when they're riding their bikes or at a friend's house, but they don't want to give them access to all the social media platforms, um, right. all the texting abilities even. Uh, so they have very limited capabilities uh, on these devices. Mm-hmm. So there's tools like that that can help again limit now instead of a 12-year-old stepping right into this frenzy of social media and all that that entails, um, we can have tools to do that. Uh, but then also on the flip side as well, I think we have to tie into some of those deeper questions to help fight this addiction, especially with our phones, because our, our day has to be bigger than our distractions. And, and our purpose has to be worth paying attention to. So, so we need to ask ourselves some of these deeper why questions. That's the power of, you know, that's why goals are important, habits, these things that we're building, because now we're starting to say, you know, I, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be distracted. There's bigger things going on here in my day that I know are important, that I want to invest my time in. So now this is feeling less and less enticing to, mm. to jump on my phone. Now I'm having more of an intentional choice and conversation and relationship. Um, you know, so that's, there's just, that's two facets of it um, that I would think of as far as how do we fight this addiction to just pull out our phone, that reflex response, where now it's, it's our digital cigarette. So anytime I feel awkward or uncomfortable, I'm going to pull out my phone uh, and take a hit, so to speak. Yeah. So I don't know whether you're familiar with this work or not, but one of my favorite um, books on sort of the history of the attention economy and what it's doing is Neil Postman's Amusing mm-hmm. Ourselves to Death. Oh, yes. Are you familiar with that work? Oh, yes. I love it. It's one of my so, favorite. Yeah, mine too. I mean, he talks about the Aldous Huxley versus George Orwell debate. You know, how's our future going to be ruined? And Orwell's kind of like this imposing outside force, which has some legitimacy. But Huxley was like, no, we're going to love our captors and we're going to get seduced into more of it. But he traces it to the telegraph. And Mm. like, if you think about mid 19th century, right, Postman's argument is, All news was local. You found out about the butcher who had a temper tantrum and Mm -hmm. took it out on a customer or the drinking problem of the guy in the saloon. And then what happened was, you know, news from overseas would take weeks or months to arrive. Oh, England got a new king in January. Meanwhile, it's May. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But you just wouldn't know unless it related to your life. In other words, you had agency. You could do something about it. Mm -hmm. Telegraph's invented. You find out overnight there's been an assassination in Europe or this mm-hmm. has happened. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I'm farming in Kansas. Mm-hmm. What what does... The, and he talks about the quality of argument that was present in the public sphere prior to the in- invention of the telegraph. Like people would go and sit and listen to Lincoln and Douglas debate for hours, hours yeah. six, seven hours. Yeah. And I thought about that and I'll give you, this is a very long question, but it's sort of staging it because I think it's a, a good convo. Yeah. Fast forward to a couple of weeks ago, I'm in Yosemite Park with my wife and I'm texting my parents pictures and all this stuff. And my mom was nervous. Hey mom, she listens to the show. She was nervous because uh, the park was flooded, right? And so we did our investigation. We found out one part of the park was flooded. Yeah. It was super cool. We had it almost to ourselves, like a private experience in Yosemite. Mm. And I'm walking along the river that's flooding And my mom's like, well, I saw it on CNN. It's like overflowing its banks. I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm right here right now. (laughs) We're in no danger. Here's a picture. It's great. Mm. We we got the park to ourselves, but be careful. And I'm like, there was the distorted view that came through the media, which needs a story, Mm -hmm. right? With the invention of cable news in the 80s, they Mm -hmm. need a story. But then you have the actual story. It's often much less dramatic. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm at a loss. Even when I led a, a larger church, 
I didn't know how to process all the pain in the congregation. Hmm. So part of me just kind of checked out on some of it, which is probably, you know, not a good pastoral thing. But like that attention economy, every single bit of information from BuzzFeed to TMZ to Fox News to CNN is vying for your attention mm -hmm. on stuff that will never impact your life. Exactly. All right, prelude mm -hmm. over. Yeah. What is that doing to us? Well, man, I think we're... <laughs> we're seeing the effects of it, you know, and that's, yeah. that's why I became so passionate about this. You know, I, cool. you know, we're, you know, I, again, it's, it's hard. We can't make just complete parallels to different issues, but when we're talking about a mental health crisis, which I, I think a lot of us are kind of coming to grips with that there's yep. a, a wide array of a mental health crisis, you know, I, I think uh, we'd be naive to not feel like this is a large part of it mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. to, to be constantly consuming drama and violence and turmoil. Uh, and, you know, and like Neil Postman warned us in the eighties, you know, I think he was talking about infotainment, mm -hmm. you know, really that's, mm -hmm. that's the goal. It's, it's, it's meant to be entertaining. And, and, you know, it's that whole, like the medium is the message too. If we're going to McLuhan, you know, if uh, my communication studies degree is coming to handy right now, but uh, you know, but this idea that if we're constantly embroiled in all of this, then again, that's, uh, we're, that's also then not only what we're going to take in, through these mediums, but then it's also going to be what we see because we really only see what we're looking for. Mm. And, and that, and, and there's a lot of psychological <laughs> theories to, to tie into this. Uh, and one of them is the, the theory of intentional blindness, inattentional mm. blindness, sorry, okay. inattentional blindness. Yeah. And I address this in, in, in my book, but, but this idea that we don't actually perceive most of what comes in front of us. We actually have to make a choice and we have to have a thought that I want, I want to see this. You know, I want to, I'm paying attention to this. So I think we've really viewed uh, paying attention wrong. You know, we see it as this kind of passive thing that I'm just, I'm just taking in things, you know, I'm just going through life and I'm seeing what I see. It's like, no, you're really bending your mind and your focus based again off what you're choosing to take in. So if you're if you're looking at all the drama and all the headlines, like you said, and all this stuff mm -hmm. going on, you know you're going to be looking for that, and you're going to see a lot of stuff. You know that's where confirmation bias comes in. You're going to see a lot of different things during your day that confirms what you're already feeling and what you already know, because CNN told you or Fox News told you this is the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Versus, let's say you're open. You know, let's say you're starting your day. You're reading the Word you know, the Bible, you're, you're mm -hmm. filling up with promises from Psalms and different things and you're praying and, and you're thinking about how good God is, how blessed you are, how grateful you are, right? You know, you're going to go through your day seeing those things that confirm it. You're going to, you're going to have a lens uh, that's geared towards that uh, versus if you're paying attention in, into different ways. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this is such an important conversation that we all have to be so mindful of because it has gigantic ramifications for leaders, for families, mm -hmm. for everybody. This is, I think this is conversation number one. Obviously, I've given my life to this last two years, so I'm biased. But mm -hmm. I think this is such a crucial and important conversation that we all need to be having with our families, with our staff, with our churches. You argue that attention and success are related, that, that successful people pay attention to different things. I guess. Can you explain the correlation? Yeah, I, I make these claims that I really feel like the most successful successful and fulfilled people on this earth have really built this practice of paying attention to what's important. And they and they don't really uh you know swerve off that path. They're really focused. You know, if you come to a successful person, they've had a, a high degree of intentional focus for a long period of time. You know, really, that's what an expert is. And, and mm. experts are really applauded in our economy. True. You can get paid a lot of money if you're the top expert in whatever topic it is. But really, that's what an expert is. They've just spent their time, their attention, so uh, their life studying something more than anybody else does. They're not smarter than anybody else. <laughs> They've just invested more of their time and attention into a certain subject. And, um, and actually, uh, to throw in a sports metaphor, because you know, guys love to throw in sports metaphors. I think girls do too. But, uh, yeah. but I was watching a documentary on Steve Largent, and he was a famous uh, wide receiver for the Seattle Seahawks. And, uh, and people thought he was too slow, you know, all these different things. He's not going to make it. Uh, but you know, Steve made it to the NFL. And, and what he was really get, got to be known for is that he would catch everything. 
if the ball was his direction, he would catch it. Mm. He was one of the best. You know, he's a Hall of Fame now wide receiver. And it was interesting to me when he was talking about something that changed his life and his ability to catch the football. And he described when he stopped looking at the entire football when he was trying to catch it, and if he would, and he started focusing on the narrow, the narrow spiral at the end of the ball, he would narrow his focus towards the very tip of the ball. That's when it changed everything for him, and he could catch the ball way more accurately than when he was looking at the entire thing. Wow! And and I felt like that's such a great metaphor, you know, and especially now in today's world. We shouldn't be focused on, I got to see everything. I got to hear everything. Right. I got to experience, you know, FOMO. I'm fear missing out. I got to see, see it all. I think it's actually the opposite. It's the people that are learning the discipline and focusing and, and being so heightened and narrowed on what they think is important. And they don't want to deviate from that. And that's what's going to give them that fulfillment and success in their career and in their life. Can you say more about that? And I'd, I'd love to drill into... Because I agree with you. I mean, it's sort of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, mm-hmm. rule, which he would argue has been taken out of context, but mm. still it's it's true, right? So basically once you have 10,000 hours in something, you're probably an expert. Or to look at it another way, you spend an hour a day. Look at John Mark Comer, a frequent guest on this mm. podcast. John spends a couple hours a day reading not only his Bible, but theologians, et cetera. That's mm-hmm. like compound interest. It just mm-hmm. goes and goes and goes and goes. Other people, well, another way to look at that is what are you giving up? So I know almost nothing about sports because Mm. that's something I'm not naturally interested in, but I've also chosen not to follow it so I Mm. could pursue other things. But it feels in the last decade like I am batting away more things vying for my attention Mm -hmm. than at any other point in my life. It's like I'm eliminating whole, and I'm not saying I'm successful, but I'm eliminating whole categories of things that Mm -hmm. I'm just not going to pay attention to, not going to focus on. You Mm -hmm. may be interested in that. I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the deluge is getting bigger. Can you Mm -hmm. comment on that? Like the process of elimination as well as deciding what you will focus on? And that's, I think that's, I think that is so crucial. And I think that's Mm going to be one of these number one, you know, if you're getting in a mastermind group or you're meeting with mentors, I think that's going to be a huge part of the conversation. And it needs to be of, how do we limit our focus and again build more discipline with where our pain our attention? Um, because, like you said, most of us have just opened our front door and we've just let whatever come in and just take it away from us. You right. know, and we've uh, given up agency. We have. We've given up that sense of control or that sense of intentionality when it mm. comes to attention. So, so I totally agree that that is so crucial and important. And, and so then it then it goes again ties to some you know age-old questions, questions we've been asking ourselves for centuries, but questions of even something simple like, okay, well, what are my top values, my soul values? You know, and, and I had a mentor ask me this and he had me rank them from one to five. You know, literally, this is your number one value. And if you're met with a hard decision in life, this is going to be the value that you fall back on first. Do you so mind he, sharing what that is? Yeah, my uh, mine. I, I described it at that time as righteousness, which really mm. meant for me as a as a right relationship with God. Mm. So not being righteous or you right, know right, being right. prideful. Yeah, it was no, more. There's a good sense. I want to have that feeling like I am walking correctly with what I feel like the Lord is telling me, and I, I want to hear, and I want to be that, and I want to live that active, uh, engaged life in this relationship. So that was going to be my number one, you know, so when decisions come, Uh if I feel like I'm strained from that, um, you know, that's when I know that that anxiety is going to kick in Mm. and anxiety. That's also, that's, that's stemming more from, um, um, being convicted than it is from other things, you know? So, but, but that helps then focus my attention, you know? So if I have my values dialed in, uh, dialed in, you know, and so family is a value of mine. And, and I find, especially in, in work environments, that, that a lot of people might feel anxious about their job or something's not right, or I don't feel like this is the right fit. And it's not a skill issue. It's not a skill set problem. They're actually doing a good job at the skill part of their job. There's, there's a value that's being contradicted that they don't realize. you know. And that value that's being contradicted is actually then trumping their strength. So their strength is not able to uh, operate, you know, and for me, communication was a strength of mine. So I always thought I should do a sales job, 
but then I was always terrible at sales jobs. Mm-hmm. And I, so I thought, well, this is a skill set issue. I, I need to grow that skill more, which I probably did. But the bigger problem was that it was a value issue of authenticity, which is another strong value of mine. You know, I really want to feel true, that inside and outside mm-hmm. consistency. And I felt like I wasn't doing that in certain sales jobs because I didn't really mm-hmm. care or believe in what I was selling. And so again, that value trumped my strength. It, it made it non-existent. So, so I go into that long discussion to basically say that it, it, it takes us asking some intentional questions of ourselves and defining things in our life. You know, that's why I always say everybody should write a book. You know, because it will be the hardest and the hardest thing you've ever done in your life and the best thing you've ever done in your life. Because to put words down and define things of what you believe, what you find mm-hmm. true, the ways that you operate. Well, now that's also then going to form a uh, form your your attention and then what you want to pay attention to. And then why do you feel excited and good about certain things? And then why do you feel anxious and terrible about other things? Mm-hmm. Now you can pay attention to those feelings, and you now you have a framework to then digest it all and you can make decisions accordingly. Hmm. Do you have things that you have categorically decided you're not going to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think, gosh, I think a lot of, like a lot of us, I think during the COVID stuff and I, I think a lot of us at a certain point had to turn off the news, so to speak, turn off the headlines it was just becoming too much. I, I mean, I, I remember the exact moment for me. It was when the the killer, it was killer hornets was the next thing. It was, mm. you know, all these headlines about killer hornets and we were in trouble because killer hornets were coming. Yeah, you and I are still standing. No, <laughs> no killer hornets. So I just, I felt like I can't take it. Like I mm. can't take this constant mm. barrage of fear in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make smart decisions. I'm going to be informed. But I do think we have made a, a general error in our society that the vast amount of information that we're taking in is leading mm. to wisdom. Mm. And I would say it's usually the opposite these days. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and you could go back centuries to people that did not have much information at their fingertips. Like you were saying, they didn't know what was going on in the next village, let alone around the world. They didn't have the information, but they were living very wise and effective and fulfilled lives making decisions based off what they were hearing from the Lord, what they were perceiving in their day, the answers that they were living in every day. And, uh, and so again, I think we've lost that mm. uh, in applying knowledge correctly that then leads to wisdom and making wise choices. You know, wisdom is calling out to us, right? It's calling out. It's mm. saying, listen to me. Mm. And I don't think that wisdom is always coming from a social media platform. I think we can get it, you know, People like you and me, we're, we're there trying to fight the good fight, right? Of I'm, here, I'm trying. Here's wisdom. Here's wisdom. Here's how to good. But I think people would be better off hearing one bit of wisdom or, or listening to people they really trust on social media and just watching one video and then shutting it down mm-hmm. and, just, and, you know, mm-hmm. and just say, let me think about what I just heard. You know, let me, let me yeah. take that in. Let me rest versus, oh, that was good. I got it. Let me listen to another video from him and another video. And then by the end, none of it means anything. There's uh, something Seth Godin said a while ago, might've been on this show, it might've been somewhere else, where I really appreciated, where he basically said, it's really important to change the channels. If you don't like what you're getting, change the channel, right? Like you simply, if a movie is upsetting you, turn it off. But he said that in terms of our social media as well. Um, do you have any thoughts on changing your inputs, changing the channel, and how that can be of help to people? I can't get that out of my head. Yeah, it's Seth Godin has a way of doing that, right? Oh, um, yeah. Seth's <laughs> in my head a lot. Thank you, Seth. He, uh, now, a side story about Seth is he endorsed my first book when cool. I, was, I was a nobody. You know, I had no books just starting out. It was 101 Secrets to Your 20s, my first book. And I just emailed Seth, you know, I, hopefully this doesn't get Seth a ton more emails than he already gets, but uh-huh. he was gracious enough to read it and he gave me an endorsement. And I remember standing up and just cheering, you know, how, how oh. you know, gracious he was to to take that in you know he's an incredibly fine human he is you know and he he lent a question to another one of my books that is tied to this a little bit but i asked seth you know what's a question we should all be asking ourselves or Mm. specifically young adults and he said what is fear holding you back from doing is it worth it 
is it worth it? You know, what is fear holding mm, you back from doing? Is mm, it worth it? So good. And, and I think that ties in a little bit to what you're saying, because I do think we little uh, have this fear of, but what if I do turn off my phone? You know, uh, what, what uh, if I'm not available? Or change my inputs. If I'm not watching the news on yeah, Fox or Yeah, I'm not going to know what what's going on in the world. I'll yeah. be, un, un, you know, uninformed. Um you know, one way I've changed my channel to get to the meats and bones of, of new practices and habits I've created as I you know, dove full into this is I will work for a few hours and then now I have scheduled in my day where I will take a 45-minute walk mm. slash hike. You know, I have a spot I love. It's in nature. Um, you know, not everybody can get to that kind of spot, but, but something, you know, and I, I do that for, and it's, it's now scheduled into my day. And, um, I can't even tell you. So for me, that's changing the channel. You know, so for me, that's changing my habits and practices. Oh, that's a fresh take on changing the channel. Yeah, and I like so that. that so that I and then I and I don't listen to anything, you know. Mm. And it always amazes me how many people I pass who are listening to something a, as I pass them. Mm. And um and I'm like, we've gone to great lengths. We've taken a lot of you know sacrifices to make this walk hike happen for all of us. Mm -hmm. So why are we why do we feel like we still need to bring noise? into the situation. Hmm. Um, what are we missing out of? And so for me, it's a time of prayer. It's a time of reflection. It's a time hmm. of exercise. You know, so I'm checking all kinds of boxes. I mean, it's good for my mental health. It's good for my physical health, my emotional mm -hmm. health. But I remember my wife, I, you know, we were talking about this and she goes, but Paul, shouldn't you be working? And, hmm. um, and, you know, I thought to myself, you know, and I thought you said, you know, Actually, that 45 minutes is actually also the most productive part of my day here, from, here. A, from a working standpoint, because I'm getting, that's where I'm getting my ideas. I'm writing parts of my book on that walk. You know, it's mm -hmm. not just when I'm sitting down, I'm, I'm taking notes, you know, so I am in, in I'm incorporating my phone just because it's easier to take a, a, a voice memo to myself. Um, but I'm getting my best stuff on, on those walks. So, so it's also, and this is a different question, but it's also rethinking productivity mm -hmm. that it's actually a very productive use of my time. And by just sitting at the computer and feeling like I just need to do something to feel like I'm working could actually be very counterproductive. So those are some ways that I've changed the channel, so to speak. Really, it's changing my habits and practices. So if we all are struggling with attention deficit disorder and paying attention to the wrong thing, you know, you, you, give us a reconstruction. Like what... What are some practices, habits, rhythms, disciplines that people can get into? Because you're right, you make the point, Paul, that we don't even know how to have conversations anymore, mm -hmm. to really listen to another human being, to, yeah. you know, wisdom is being screened out in the process mm -hmm. of all of this information. Mm -hmm. So let's spend the rest of our time together mm -hmm. reconstructing. Yeah. Uh, how do you get out of this mess that is not of your choosing? It just comes at you. This is the air we're breathing. Yeah. You know, I think it's this, um, I, I think it ties to something I was just talking about, but, but even this realization for me that um, aha moments, they don't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, aha moments don't happen by accident. And so a lot of people will say, you know, I get my best ideas in the shower. That's what a lot of people say. Or I get, you know, I was doing the dishes and I had this idea hit me. You know, and again, our mind is always working and it's always trying to solve problems and especially things that you've been thinking about throughout the day. And so, so I talk a lot about, you know, protecting these kind of silent silos in our life, you know, protecting these spaces because that's really what we're losing. We're losing the quiet, uh, even uncomfortable, awkward, boring. You know, we're losing these spaces we're losing that margin, that, that sense of, I have nothing else to do, like mm. you said, you know, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pray mm. because I, I feel anxious. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to pray instead of, you know, now it's, I'm going to look at my phone, you know, phone really has replaced, replaced prayer, you know, in a lot of ways yeah. in those moments. Um, so it's, again, it's realizing how important those moments are and that you have to protect them. So that's why I make the argument, even in the book, you know, that we need those boring moments. We need those uncomfortable mm -hmm. moments, those awkward moments. Start catching yourself from pulling yourself, you know, pulling your phone out and escaping that moment. You know, I'm, I call us cultural escape artists, you know, where we're mm -hmm. escaping all the time and just force yourself to just be in that moment because you never know what unexpected, amazing 
is happening. And especially from a faith perspective, what is God orchestrating? What is God trying to show you? Maybe he's trying to answer a prayer in your life right now through this person that is sitting next to you, but you feel awkward in that space. So you escape that situation into whatever you're going to look at and, and you never engage the person. And God's like, oh my gosh, it took me a while to set this up, you know, Paul, you know, and you just threw it out, you know, without even a moment's notice. Um, so I think some of those things starts helping us then reprogram our day. Then again, that says, you know, uh, you know, maybe again, the mo- the best thing I can do at this moment is just feel the awkwardness of this. Um, you know, that's why I encourage young adults, even at conferences to go around. And I, I say, go do an awkward wander at a conference, you know, no agenda, uh, you know, go up to tables, go to the poor people that are selling stuff. You know, they're selling books and shirts and whatever, go up and talk to them. You know, they're feeling awkward because no one wants to talk to them. So go up and talk to them and see what can happen. Um, and one of my book deals that happened, uh, happened because of an awkward wander at a conference mm-hmm. where I just awkwardly wandered up to a table, struck up a conversation. And she's like, I got to introduce you to the VIP of marketing. And, and then that's what led to my second book deal. So again, we never know what unexpected, amazing, you know, in these not so chance encounters is what I call them. Instead of chance encounters, not so chance encounters, because the odds that you're sitting next to somebody right now on the subway or on the plane are so mind blowing. I think we at least should pay attention to it and give it a chance. You know, just give it a chance that maybe this is something I need in my life that's been orchestrated. This has been an active area for me. I used to be the conversation person who filled in all the gaps with words, and mm. it's been a discipline. Mm. For someone who's uncomfortable with silence, with awkward spaces, what are some good ways to push through that? How would you coach them or counsel them? You know, I think I, I don't like being awkward. It's just like <laughs> anybody, I think. And so I think like any habit, it, it takes practice. And you're not going to do it well all the times. And there's going to be those moments where you're like, I just can't take it. Like, I didn't care. I don't care what Paul and Carrie said. Like, I just can't take this elevator ride right now. I got to jump on my phone. And that's okay. You know, it's just like anything it takes, but at least you're aware of it. So at least now if you're asking yourself that question and at least catching yourself, uh, you know, so for me, even on, on my home screen of my phone, the image that I have on my phone that, that I gave away to people, I designed a bunch of these was basically just saying, do I need to jump on my phone right now? Hmm. And that's my home. That's my home image. Now that's your home screen. That's my home screen. Lock screen. Because wow. I, if I'm looking at this, you know, we interact with our phone, you know, over 2000 times a day. Wow. So I at least want to ask myself this question. You know, it's almost like sober Paul, right? Hmm. Who's not addicted to his phone asking, you know, Paul who's intoxicated and wants to jump on the phone right away. It's like my, it's like me asking, you know, is this the best use of your time? Do you need to do this? And that catches me a lot of times where I'll actually stop. My brain can catch up to what I was doing. And I can say, you know what? No, I'm just escaping some feeling right now. I actually shouldn't do that. I mean, I'll just pray or I'll just be here with my kids instead of escaping this moment with my kids. Um, And so these are some just simple steps, some practices, again, that we can start taking. Yeah, you also talk about putting breaks in your day, and it does seem like all the pauses now get picked up with the device, right? Mm-hmm. So you're back on your laptop, on your phone, whatever that happens to be. Um, for people for whom that is the default, any other tips and tricks to avoid um, filling every yeah. silent second with activity? Well, I... I would just make the argument, first of all, is that our breaks into our phone are breaking us. They're, they're counterproductive again. This is not a break. It's actually breaking you. So mm. it's not the relief that you need. So again, let's just, let's, okay, that's okay. If that's the case. So I, I detail different things, but I think one simple step is maybe even just, okay, change your location, change where you're at. So if you're feeling, if you're on your computer and now you're just going to jump to your phone, well, we'll get up and do something. We still need to do physical things in a physical world. And it can be very helpful for you to just, okay, let me go do the dishes. Let me go on that walk. Let me garden. Let me play with my kids. Let me do something that I know is important, that brings value, that I like to do, or even something that I just need to do. And I'll have some sense of accomplishment. Well, as we build again, those habits of 
instead of just staying on the couch or staying in my office chair and just shifting from one device to another, we'll start rewarding ourselves with feelings of accomplishment, with feelings of uh, emotional well-being. We'll start looking forward to that. Again, like my hike that I do now, I can't tell you how much I look forward to that in the day. So it's it's been positively reinforced so many times now that it's become that new habit that has roots into the ground. So I think even just changing your location, getting up, saying, okay, no, I'm going to put the phone down. Let me go do something. That can make a big difference in, again, fighting some of the uh, uh, the reflex responses that you have that you didn't maybe even realize you have. I know this is sort of the big macro question underneath everything we've talked about, but your book is called Listen to Your Day. What does it mean to actually listen to your day? What do you, what are you yeah. driving at? I think I'm trying to make the point is that your day, there, there's real answers found in the details of your day. And I really believe, especially from a faith perspective, that, that we're, we're asking God, we're praying to God, we're asking him these questions or show us this, reveal, reveal this to us. And I really believe that God is showing us so much. He's revealing so much to us, to us every day, and yet we don't have eyes to see. We don't have ears to hear, you know, and, and Jesus warns about this in the Bible. And, and so I feel like listen to your day to me means really listen to the revelation that's coming every day, the ideas, um, the beautiful relationships that you get to have every day. Um, feelings of peace and contentment and joy and gratitude and well-being. You know, these moments that we can experience every day, but we have to be, again, active participants and we have to, again, be looking for that. We have to pay attention to that so that we can have eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, because again, if we're just constantly distracted, we're not going to see it. You know, and I, I, I commonly say, you know, we used to live annoyed with distractions now, far too often, we live for our distractions. Mm-hmm. So and annoyed with anything that takes us away from them. Exactly. Because it's like, well, that's... And so I don't want my kids to feel like they're the distraction. Mm-hmm. I don't want my wife to feel like she's the distraction. Um, you know, so I think, again, that's just that, that reprogramming so that, yes, the day is rich with so much. You know, and if you, don't, if you feel stuck in your life, if you feel like I'm not getting those breakthrough ideas... Um, maybe it's a, a matter of changing some of those habits and practices of where you're putting your attention and are you protecting those spaces throughout your day and what are you paying attention to? Mm. Yeah. Uh, any other tips on undividing your divided attention? Oh man. Yeah. I think we've, I think we've covered a lot of good mm-hmm. ones, you know, so mm-hmm. far, you know, again, I think, you know, for me, you know, especially if I'm, let's say putting it in my context, you know, and I talk about this, I talk about mindset models in the book, mm-hmm. you know, basically different ways for almost, for us to almost practice uh, new ways to pay attention. So I talk about having a, you know, writer's mindset or uh, investigator mindset or an entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah. And, and for me, that was almost a fun, uh, interesting way, exercises that I've gone through that really helped me see things differently throughout the day. And, uh, you know, so take an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, they, they think differently in different ways, but one argument that I make is they pay attention to their problems in a very different way. So Hmm. for an entrepreneur, a problem might not be something to escape from or something to complain about, but a problem could be something that leads to a business idea or to Mm -hmm. an opportunity Mm -hmm. that, Hey, is anybody doing anything about this problem? I can't believe nobody's doing anything. I got to do something about this problem. Couldn't agree more. And, um, and so that's even an interesting way where it's like, well, I wish I could think like these people. It's like, well, you can. You, you can think about these people and it, it starts with your attention. Um, so for a writer, you know, for, for me, um, I'm writing all the time. My whole day, I'm, I'm working on my book. But I only really am at the computer a few hours. Mm-hmm. It's more of a mindset and a lifestyle that I'm living where now I have my, my attention is heightened and I'm, I'm paying attention to those, those revelations, to those ideas, to those aha moments. And then I'm writing it down. I'm jotting that note down. And so each book starts for me with about 10 pages of just notes, not organized. I mean, I just call it like my, my fodder, my kindling. It's just like I'm, I'm gathering kindling all the time 
And, and, and then I'll see later what sparks, you know, I'll see later what fits, but I'm really living that mindset by paying attention through that, that heightened sense of awareness and then writing it down. So there's different ways we can do those things. Like a filter that you can kind of look for. Mm-hmm. And um, man, Paul, anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Oh man, you know, I think this, again, I, I just can't stress enough how important I feel like this conversation is. And, and for people to even talk about with each other, you know, I think this takes some mentorship. I think this takes accountability, you know, and I think a lot of us are maybe even a little ashamed to, to admit, you know, yeah, my phone is telling me I'm spending six hours a day on it, mm-hmm. you know, but, but we can't just hide it again when we isolate ourselves and we feel like, well, I don't want to talk about it. You know, we all know where that leads, that, that, that drives you into a deeper sense of shame. You can't break out of those cycles and routines. So I, I would say, you know, reach out to people, ask people to walk next to you, try to figure out ways to do this in a community with your family, with your wife, with your coworkers, whatever it is. Um, so you can all walk through this together. Um, because I do think, I think this is such an important topic and, and really takes our full attention to be intentional now about where we're placing it. Well, that's a passion we share. And I want to thank you so much. The book is called, uh, listen to your day. It's available everywhere books are sold. And Paul, where can people find you online these days? Yeah, my website has been the same for years. It's called allgrownup.com. <laughs> but grown is G-R-O-A-N, like you're mm-hmm. groaning in pain, all grown up. And um, you can find free chapters from all my books on my website if you want to check out this book or other books. And then uh, social media, I'm still there. I haven't gotten rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find me at Paul Angoni on Instagram. Uh, Angoni, A-N-G-O-N-E. It's a good Italian name. I, I was telling yeah, you earlier, like, Anthony great. Angoni. I'm Tony Angoni if I wanted to be a true <laughs> Italian, but I've stuck with Paul for the time being. But uh, That's awesome. Paul, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me on, Carrie. It's been a great conversation. Well, I hope you found that helpful. It was great to have different voices on the podcast, and he is a huge influencer when it comes to millennials and Gen Z, as a lot of you know. And if you want more, you can go to the show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 587. And we are in the process of rebooting our show notes. It'll be easier than ever to find the transcripts. You've got a direct link to YouTube now. I don't know exactly when that's going to launch, but I've seen a preview. It's pretty cool. And we are on YouTube. You can go to Carrie Newhoff on YouTube too. A lot of you are watching now uh, in addition to or instead of listening. And it's a great way to get the word out there as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, would you leave us a rating and review? And also, uh, I'm going to tell you about the guests that we have got coming up. We have got Kevin Kelly, someone Tim Ferriss calls the most interesting man in the world. We have Richard Foster, celebration of discipline guru, Miroslav Wolf, a professor I have followed for years, Arthur Brooks. Oh my gosh. So excited about that. Judah and Chelsea Smith, Jenny Catron is coming back, Russell Moore, Louis Giglio, and a whole lot more on the podcast. So when you subscribe, you don't miss a thing. And next episode, who have we got? Stephanie McNeil. And we're going to talk about how to build an authentic, engaged audience on social media. We're going to get lessons from BuzzFeed, dealing with haters, snarkers, and negative comments, and writing headlines and captions that get attention. Here's an excerpt. The best practices that I've seen is if someone, you know, thinking critically about the criticism, but, you know, I mentioned in the book that there are forums and websites dedicated to hating on influencers and they really range, you know, some Mm. of them are, you know, some of them are genuinely like, Oh, this really disappoints me that X, Y, Z would do something. And, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. if, if I was an influencer, I, and I saw some, you know, and even I'm sure you, I'm sure, you know, as a journalist, sometimes I get, you know, DMS or emails or comments that I'm like, Oh, you know what? Like, yeah, that probably, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that story I wrote or that, that line or something I put on social media, you know, that wasn't my best, you know, I'm, that's something Mm -hmm. that I should, you know, own up to, but then there's also crazy stuff you get. And so you, if you, you know, if you, if you took every single one of those to heart, um, you would go insane. So if you want to sharpen your online pencil, well, Make sure you subscribe so that you get the very next episode. I want to thank you so much for listening. And before we go, because you listen to the end, I know there's a lot of you who listen right through to the end. I've got something really exciting coming up. 
with Les McEwen. So he and I are going to be leading a workshop, a live coaching call in the Art of Leadership Academy. This is the premium forum that I launched a year ago. We got over 1,500 church leaders in it. I am so excited. And we're going to talk with Les, who's one of the most popular guests ever on this podcast, about predictable success, the seven stages of organizational growth and decline. Best part, like you can listen to the episodes here, but you'll get to ask Les questions. And if you want to join, you've got to join uh, quickly because we're doing it live, like it is a live coaching call. So go to theartofleadershipacademy.com, check it out. You'll get a lot more than just the coaching call. You're going to get all of my courses, premium content, an amazing community where people have your back, the app, the website, a whole lot more for the Art of Leadership Academy. And thousands of leaders are calling it home. I would love for you to be one of them. So join us at theartofleadershipacademy.com. That's where I show up pretty much every day and would love to see you there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier that you're facing.